0: Hey, great to see all over here this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come to your Hebrews chapter 11, once again we want to come with all humility and uh, to say that without your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we truly cannot get to what you are saying. So we pray that you be working in our hearts and our minds to not just understand what the passage is saying, but to see ourselves and where we may be lacking. And to fill our faith with true conviction of who you are and what your promises are as well. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's an experiment you can do at home, uh, apparently. Uh, I think you can find it on YouTube and the internet, where you get a salt solution. You know, you just boil some water and you put some salt in and you make it really salty. And you get a paper clip tied to a string and you put it into the salt solution after it's cooled down, and over time, just a little bit, uh, there'll be crystals forming on that paper clip. And I remember that uh, experiment was told to us when I was in Australia by my pastor when I was there, and he was saying that actually some Christians are like that. They are like the paper clip put into a nice, comfortable, conducive environment, and then they become Christians, they have faith and it accumulates on them like crystals on a paper clip. But the problem is that when you take that paper clip, or you take the Christian out of that nice, warm, comfortable environment, then the crystals fall off. Just like for a Christian taken out of the comfortable environment, the Christ, the, their, their faith falls away, uh, and uh, they soon fall away as a Christian. And I remember him, uh, the, my pastor at uh, that time, Joshua, and saying so, because... In his observation, uh, when he was doing overseas Christian work with the students in uh, the University of New South Wales, (coughs) he said that he saw many of them going back to their home countries, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Hong Kong, Singapore and when they were in Australia, when they first accepted Christ, they were really gung-ho and strong and fervent as Christians, but then when they went to a hostile environment, very, very quickly they fell away. As a Christian. Now, I remember as I was listening to that uh, true story and the illustration, I was thinking it's very worrying, isn't it? Because it's not just overseas students who, when they move from when they study and go back home, are facing a hostile situation. Uh, it happens to us periodically in our lives. When we move from our secondary school to Poly or to JC, from our JC, to NS, from NS to university, from NS to a working environment, when we change our circle of friends, we can move from a comfortable environment to a hostile environment. We can move from a conducive environment to an environment where it's very, very hard to be a Christian. And I guess the question then is, will we be like that paperclip and lose our faith just like crystals falling off the paperclip? Well, today, as we look at uh, the passage that we're looking at, chapter 11, in the book of Hebrews, that's exactly the situation that the author has in mind. Okay, that's what was on the lips of the Hebrew Christians and in the hearts and the minds of the Hebrew Christians. The question of faith in a hostile environment. Because if you turn back to me to chapter 10, verse 32, uh, look back to chapter 10, verse 32, you'll see that this is exactly the real life reality that they were facing. <coughs> in verse 32 it says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, that means after they would become Christians, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to some persecution. At other times you stood side by side of those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. So today as we look at this passage in chapter 11, it's really a continuation of what we're reading at the end of chapter 10. And it's a really uh, focused on the idea of faith, but not faith in a theoretical level, right? Today, we're not having a systematic theology on the topic of faith. This is not an academic ivory tower of university lecture. This is a very real lecture, or not lecture, this is a very real topic in terms of faith, and faith under hardship and persecution. If you look here in chapter 10, it says that there are basically two things that the Hebrew Christians were to focus on in order to overcome the difficulty of persecution and hardship that they were facing. What were those two things? Well, it says there in verse 34, they had to keep suffering because they knew that they had a better and more lasting possession. So don't throw away your confidence for it will be richly rewarded. So they were to continue in faith because their faith looked forward to a better, lasting possession. They knew that we were rewarded by God at the very end if they persevered. The second thing that they were to base their faith on was to know in verse 36 that you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. So here, the second thing was to know that God keeps His promises. The first thing is, you will know you're going to get what you're going to get in the future, the better and lasting possession. The second thing is, you know that God is a promise-keeping God. And that flows straight into chapter 11 because chapter 11 brings up those same two things. In verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. See, confidence in what we do not hope for. Uh, That means, What we hope for is in the future, but we have confidence in that. At the same time, we have assurance of what we do not see. We do not see God now, but we know of his promise-keeping nature. Now, sometimes when you look at verse 1 of chapter 11, you say confidence in what we hope for. Now, this is not a subjective confidence. You know, you can sort of have confidence, but it's an emotional, ill-placed, wishy-washy, sort of confidence, isn't it? I mean, I can have very great confidence that Singapore will win the World Cup of Soccer one day. But, is that a real confidence? Is that confidence based on reality? No, it's not, isn't it? But here the idea of confidence is not just so much a subjective emotional confidence but it's an objective confidence to know that what you hope for in the future because it is promised by God is real it is concrete, it is solid, it is an objective sense of confidence. In the same way, we can have assurance about what we do not see, even though we do not see God, we know that He keeps His promises. Now how do we know that this is true? Well, the author of Hebrews seeks to build up our confidence in what we, do not, what we hope for and our assurance of what we do not see by looking at people in the past and showing that these are people who have put their faith in God and His promises and they've always come true. So what is the very first example he uses? Well look at what it says there in verse (coughs) 4, the first person that he looks at. In verse 4 he says, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Now uh, this looks back at the very first few believers. Okay, so. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, Cain and Abel were the children of Adam. Okay? Cain and Abel were the children of Adam. If you look up here on this slide, you see that um, uh, when they had sort of grown up, uh, Abel uh, became a keeper of flocks. That means he had uh, sheep, lambs, things like that. right? He was a pastoralist. Cain worked the soil. He was a farmer. Right? He planted things. He grew things. In the course of time, Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. Now when we read this uh, account, uh, <clears throat> why is it God didn't look with favor on Cain, but look with favor on Abel. Is it because God likes fat? Right? Is, he a, is, he a, is he like meat? Because right? he, like, he likes steaks and he doesn't like vegetables. No, isn't it? Because if you look at this passage in verse 4 of chapter 11 in Hebrews, it said that God commended Abel because of his faith. See, fundamentally what really counts in God's eyes, when he looks at you, when he looks at me, is faith. That's why he, what's pleasing to him. It is not whether we give a gazillion dollars or twenty cents. It is the faith that we have that motivates us. So God looked at Cain and he looked at his offering, not because he, he, when he looked at it, so it's only vegetables. And I don't really like vegetables. It's because Cain came to him without the attitude of faith. Whereas Abel came with faith. Now, if you look at verse 5, the example then turns to Enoch. And it says in verse 5 that by faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now, here there is no idea of sacrifice or offering towards God. Now what, what was pleasing about Enoch to God? Not because he gave fat, or meat, or vegetables, Enoch was pleasing towards God because he had faith. And in verse 6, it actually re- puts that positive implication to a negative, isn't it? It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, some people say, oh, you know, uh, I'm a good man, I've done, or a good woman, I've done all these things for God, and therefore God should be happy with me. But look at what it says there in verse 6. Without faith in God, you cannot be pleasing to God because, as it goes on to say, faith believes that God exists and that He earnestly uh, and rewards those who earnestly seek Him. See, how can you be pleasing to God if you do not have faith that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him? See, those are the two things that are the same theme of verse 1 in chapter 11 and verse 32 to 36, isn't it? What is faith? What is the, the definition of faith under pressure? It is to know that God is real. got to know that God will reward those who keep seeking Him. Faith has an orientation towards God today that knows that it is, He is real. An orientation to the future, that God keeps His promises. So therefore, as we look at this passage, we see that uh, the faith that is being advocated here in the book of Hebrews is not a new faith, it's not an innovation, it's not something that he's commending as new, but this is a faith that has been there right from the very beginning with Abel and with Enoch. (coughs) Now, this is not blind faith, okay? Uh, Sometimes people define faith in terms of, oh, faith is believing something which is unbelievable, you know, I, I force myself to believe something which you cannot believe. That's blind faith. So blind faith is like, okay, let's say I say to you, there's a chair here, okay? There's a chair here, a very high chair. It's an invisible chair. Okay, if you really believe that it's real, then you can sit down on it and it can hold your weight. But I see that's blind faith because you're, you're making yourself believe something which you, you really have no basis to believe in. But as we look at this passage, Blind faith does not work in, when there's hardship and persecution and difficulty. Because the, the construct of your mind cannot sustain itself when you're faced with real hardship, when people are taking the most precious things away from you. But the whole of chapter 11 is to show that the belief in God, that God exists, that He is a promise-keeping God and He will fulfill His promises in the future, are not blind faith but it's real because God shows over and over and over and over again that He is real and that He will keep His promises to give, bring a better future. So let's look at the track record of God. Let's look okay, so verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now, the first example here is of Noah. Now, For those of you who have seen the movie, just uh, put that out of your mind for a second and just focus on what the Bible says. Okay? You notice here that Noah was warned by God of something that he could not see in the future. Something which, I guess in his mind, in his circumstance, would not be something plausible or possible but what did he do? He believed God that what he said would happen in the future would happen. And what did he do? In holy fear, in reverent fear or in the awe of God, he built the ark. He took action because of what God had said would happen in the future and as a result, he saved his family. See, here is God and a person. God says to this person, this thing is going to happen. And this person believed in God and it came true and he saved himself. And the lesson here in just these few verses is well, it pays to have faith in what God tells you is going to happen in the future because it happens. But this is not the isolated incident, right? This is not the exception of Noah. It's not just Noah's experience. Because he then goes on to use the next person in the biblical history which is the person of Abraham. <coughs> Verse eight. By faith Abraham when called to go to a place he went to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so this one man, who was as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now, if you look at this passage, um, each example has complexities and subtleties which build on what's happening, right? But we have to really pay attention to what's happening here. Now, if you look at this map, okay, uh, part of the problem of reading this passage is that it presumes knowledge that you have to understand from the Old Testament. So we're going to sort of go through it slightly. So, uh, this is where Abraham or Abram lived, okay, in Babylon, uh. Now, God asked him to go all the way to the promised land, which was, was, uh, you know, this was the inheritance that he was going to receive or his descendants were going to receive. Now, you can see it's a far, far, long, long way, okay? And uh, obviously, those days, they didn't have planes. So, basically, God told Abraham to migrate from here to here. He left his family. He left his clan. He left everything just on the promise of God. Because God told him to. So, like Noah, he said, okay, in Reverend Fay, I will go. And God had given Abram two promises, two fundamental promises that he could see, concrete promises that he would see. Okay? So next slide. God said to him in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land. I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so that's going to come later on. But, in the tangible things that Abram could see, would be that he was going to go to this land that God was going to give him. But in Genesis 15, God again spoke to Abram and he said, Look, look up to the heavens and count the stars, that indeed you can't count them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Okay, so, as Abram went and migrated to this new place, there were two things fundamentally that he could concretely and tangibly hope to see in his lifetime. And that was land and people. Now, the problem was that uh, if you look at Abram's life, in his whole life, um, were the promises of God ever truly achieved to its fullest extent? Never, right? So, we know from history that Abram, when he went to this land, he wandered around as a stranger. I mean, uh, he was a very rich stranger, obviously, he had lots of flocks and everything, but he never really called that place home, he was still living among other people. And in subsequent generations, they actually had to move out of the land and go to Egypt. And we know also, that in terms of children, many, 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 many years later, Abram and Sarah had one child, and that was the only child they had together. And so, as a result, again, the promise of many, many children was not fulfilled in this generation. In fact, if you look at verse 13, verse 13 sums this up, isn't it? It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, but they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. So in Abram's life, in Sarah's life, in the life of Isaac and Jacob, they never fully saw the promises of God realized. They died before the promises of God were realized. They saw them only from a distance. But does that mean that God was not faithful to his promises? Does that mean that faith was in vain or faith was wasted or for nothing? No, isn't it? Because by the time of The Hebrew Christians, in fact, when we look back, we know that God had fulfilled His promises. Many, many generations after Abraham and Sarah, they did indeed receive the land. And indeed, the whole nation of Israel came about through Abraham and Sarah. So they did become as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So God doesn't always give us the promises in our lifetime. But it doesn't mean that He has failed in His promises. It just means that God's plan is not fulfilled in our lifetime. But if you look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, they they kept believing right to the very end. They didn't say, oh well, you know, I've wasted 10 years and God didn't answer His promises. No, they kept believing to the very end. And even when they died, they still had faith. But God still kept His promises to the very end. You see, if you look at verse 29 to verse... Uh, 34, you see that uh, God sometimes fulfills His promises immediately and sometimes He fulfills His promises after people die. So in verse 29 to 34, here were instances where God fulfilled His promises in the immediate lifetime of the people. So in verse thirty-nine. by faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army marched around them for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what what, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson or Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames and escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned into strength and it became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. See, so sometimes, like say when God told the army to uh, walk around the walls of Jericho, the promises of God were fulfilled in seven days. But the promises to Abraham were not fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. So it, it doesn't mean that God doesn't keep His promises. It's just that God's timeline is so different from our lifetime. See, if you know someone, and you uh, maybe they are friends with them or acquaintances, I'm sure we all have uh, people we know at work, at our classes, and, and as our relatives. Some people are dependable some of the time. Right? You know, sometimes you go to wedding dinners or family dinners, and you know that for sure, this person is late 50% of the time. All right, have you, you know, I'm sure you know people at like that. Whereas you know that there are some people who are always on time, 100% of the time. Well, in this case, if you look at the God's dealings with His people, He is faithful to His promises 100% of His time. And that's why we can trust in this God who keeps His promises. He kept His promises to Abraham and Sarah He kept his promises to the people when they escaped from Egypt. He kept his promises when they entered into the promised land. He kept his promises to the people and the judges and of the kingships and the prophets. And that's why it says there, chapter chapter 11 verse 1, we can have confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Because God is a dependable God. Now this is so important for us to know. Because in times of suffering, it is really difficult to hold on to the promises of God and the character of God when we are faced with the immediacy, the reality of pressure in our Christian faith. But the example of people in history, again in chapter 11, shows that true faith puts the character of God and the promises of God of greater worth than suffering today. See look at the example of Abraham, he went and left his family, his clan, he went to a foreign land and he lived as an alien and a stranger in that world. He had no place to call home. But yet it says there that Abraham did that because he knew that he was looking forward to a better promise. Look at the example of Moses. So you look at verse 24. Let's turn to verse 24. It says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded this grace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was, who is invisible. All right, by faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. See, so given a choice, <clears throat> sounds like a no brainer. Okay? Would you prefer to live as part of the royal family or would you like to live? as a slave, be identified with the slaves. I guess in the modern context of us today, is that would you like to live you know, as, a, as, as a Singaporean, you know, really rich person living in this beautiful mansion with all the standings of society or would you like to live as say a foreign construction worker? That's the equivalent isn't it? But that's what Moses chose. Moses chose to identify himself with the slaves of Egypt because they were his people, because he knew that his people, his God, had promised that he would have a better future. See, at the end of the day, the Christian life, or the life of faith with God, demands suffering. A lot of the times. Suffering is not an unusual situation when we choose to be faithful towards God. It says here in verse uh, 33 onwards, or 35 onwards. Look at what it says there in verse 35 onwards. It says uh, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they may gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were soared in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Now, if we see from history again, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Moses... right the great figure in uh, Israel's history, normal people who believe in God, they all suffered terribly. That says that when we suffer as Christians, as people of faith, it is not something, again, an exception, something unique, something that it is unusual. But rather it is part and parcel of the faithful person's experience in this world. Now, uh, on the wall in my uh, in my study, uh, I, I printed this thing from the internet and it says 10 things that, uh, that churches don't tell uh, Christians in church, right? And I think point five was that many churches don't tell Christians that we are meant to suffer. Okay? Now, I guess that's true in many times where if you, I guess, go to some churches, you, you, you'll never hear that the Christian life is actually characterized by suffering, persecution and hardship. If you go to a Prosperity Gospel Megachurch, uh, they always leave out the teaching that actually Christians suffer, that being a Christian can lead to hardship and persecution. Um, I remember a friend of mine who went to a mega church, and he kept telling me, I need to go to church because I'll be more blessed. But actually, the Bible doesn't say that when you become a Christian, you become more blessed. Uh, yes, we are blessed in different ways, but you also become more beaten up, right? Uh, you become more stoned, you become more put to, put to death and even so on and two. You see, unfortunately, we need to have the right perspective of the world and our place in the world. I remember reading uh, many Christian publications which said that actually there were more Christians who were martyred in the last century, than in all the previous centuries. And even today, in many, in many countries, if you stand up for Christ, uh, you will actually face real suffering. So last week, uh, I went to um, the website of the Daily Mail. Okay, of, in, it's a, it's a, I think it's quite a tabloid newspaper in, in England. So it's not something that you rec- uh, I would recommend you to read for quality journalism. But I was just uh, reading it. And I realized that uh, they actually had some articles about Christians in the Daily Mail. And they were actually reporting that uh, the Christians in the hospital, there was this Christian uh, woman or nurse in the hospital who was actually uh, asked to take off the cross she was wearing and uh, she, she was actually going to court to, to, uh, to fight for her right to wear a cross in the hospital. Uh, Again, there was another Christian woman or person who was working for British Airways. And again, British Airways said that she could not wear a cross when she was working. Uh, There was a bed and breakfast place um, in England which refused to uh, welcome a a gay couple. And the the court actually ordered the bed and breakfast to close. Uh, There was a Christian person, uh, this is just a few weeks ago, a Christian person working in a daycare. Who refused to read a story with a gay couple, and this person was actually uh, threatened. Uh, she was actually sacked. Uh, another person was also sacked for sharing the gospel with someone at work. Again, if you read uh, stories about what's happening in America, uh, if you are a Christian university professor and you express your Christian views, it can actually lead you to uh, not be promoted uh, within some universities in America. So even in uh, so-called Christian countries you can see that to be a Christian brings with it real cost, real persecution, real hardship. Now why is this happening? Uh, Why is it the world uh, doesn't like Christians or people of faith in God in this way? Well it says so in uh, verse 38 right, so look at what it says there in verse 38 again, in case we missed it. It says the world was not worthy of them Now what does that mean the world was not worthy of them? It literally means that the world or society is not worthy of God's people Uh, Because the world is living in rebellion against God, it is also living in rebellion and hardened against God's people So I remember one of the uh, commentators wrote that the problem with civilized society is that it is uncivilized to God's people and that's true to a certain extent. That the world, as we know it, is not really naturally sympathetic or loving towards God. It is actually hardened in rebellion against God. And as a result, if we hold on to our faith in God, it will also be in rebellion against us, and we will pay the cost of it. But the way that we continue to persevere is to see that our faith in our God who keeps his promises and our faith in the future is more real and more tangible and more important than the present experience that we have today. See, if you think about it, almost all the people uh, in this uh, account actually did suffer for their faith. Uh, I know it's not commentated on, but remember Abel, Cain and Abel in the beginning? Abel died for his faith, didn't he? in a way, right? He, he presented his faith and Cain got angry and killed him. Abraham, well, he suffered as an alien and stranger. Isaac and Jacob, both as well, his children, continued to be nomads in the land. Moses uh, chose exile and rebellion uh, rather than pleasures of Egypt. And it goes on and on and on. But all of them kept having faith. But even though they kept faith, they have not yet received the final fulfillment of God's promises. See, at the very end of chapter 11, it says that all these people, Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Moses, they're all waiting just for us for the very last promise of God to be fulfilled. In verse 39 it says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. See, they were all commended, they were all you know, uh, commended for their faith, but yet they, they haven't received the ultimate promise. In fact, they're waiting together with us to receive the ultimate promise. And what is the ultimate promise? Well, up here on the slide, in 14 and 16, in verse 35, it says so, isn't it? Those people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country that left, they would have the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, call, to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Okay, in verse 35, right? women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to, believe, sorry, to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. See, the only way we will ever persevere through the suffering of this life is to look forward and to know that the life that waits for us in heaven and that resurrection is as real as the suffering we receive today and so much better will that promise be at the very end. I know that sometimes peop- I meet people, I'm sure you've met people who say, Oh, you know, uh, I don't really want to believe in God yet, but just before I die, I will believe in God so I can have my cake and eat it. Right? So you know, I can have all my sinful pleasures now and then I'll, I'll get diagnosed with cancer or something. Then I'll become a, a Christian and then I'll go to heaven. Uh, but the problem is that's not real faith. That's not the faith that is being defined here in chapter 11. In chapter 11, it says that faith actually sees the future so strongly, so realistically and so real and solidly that is willing to deny and renounce not just sinful pleasures in this life, but actually be willing to put up with real hardship and persecution and suffering in this life. Because that future is so real to us. See, I wonder whether for us, our faith is like that. Our faith is to know the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. That for us, the future is so real and tangible for us that the suffering of today is nothing compared to the reality of what we are looking forward to. See, so in conclusion, I would like to just challenge you with this question. I want you to ask yourself this question right now. okay? And I want you to ask it of yourself in all seriousness. What would it take for me to give up my faith? Just think about that question for a moment. What would it take For you to give up your faith? If someone were to take away your job, your career, would you give up your faith? If someone were to take away your freedom, put you in prison, would you give up your faith? If someone were to take away your family, would you give up your faith? Or even if someone were to take away your life, would you give up your faith? Because if you know the future, and you are so confident of the promises of God, of heaven, of a better city, of a better resurrection, then none of these things should be worth giving up our faith. Because we know that that certainty of heaven is there, and we will never lose it, And it's so much greater than what this world is like. And and even the the pressures and sufferings of this world cannot take that away from us. So I hope that uh, as we look at this passage today, you really see what our faith is about. That it is a concrete, real conviction based on objective history that God keeps His promises, He is real, and that the future is real for us. You know, I've said before that a good practice is to wake up every morning and to begin the day and to give thanks to God for five things, right? Give thanks to God for five things. And I think that part of giving thanks to God is to also give thanks to Him that He has heaven waiting for you, right? That there is a place for you in this heavenly city. And when you give thanks to Him for that place in the heavenly city, it is as real as The other four things that you might give thanks for that are real for you, that just happened in your life. Because that is the quality of the promises of God. And that is the quality of the character of God and His promises. That when you know of who God is and that He never, never, ever gives up on His promises, you will know that when He's promised you that heaven it is as real as yours in your life. And you should never, ever lose faith in that, no matter what happens in this life that we live today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We pray that our faith will be filled with a real confidence of what we hope for, and assurance of what we do not see that that was a faith that was part and parcel of all the people in history who were your people, a faith that was looking forward to the fulfillment of your promises in the future, a faith that was truly uh, dependent on your character of faithfulness. Dear Father, we pray that armed with this knowledge that we will never fall away, that there will be nothing this world can do to us to take away our faith. And that truly, now and forevermore, we will always stand firm as your people, as people who, through Jesus Christ, have been made right to you. And that uh, we will never, as individuals, as a church, deny you uh, because of suffering, of persecution, and of hardship. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.